Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 58. Agnes always enjoyed Christmas Eve dinner with Edom and Jacob, because even they tempered their pessimism on this night and nights. Whether the season touched their hearts or they wanted even more than usual to please their sister, she didn't know. If gentle Edom spoke of killer tornadoes or if dear Jacob was reminded of massive explosions, each dwelt not on horrible death as usual, but on feats of courage in the midst of dire catastrophe, recounting astonishing rescues and miraculous escapes. With Barty's presence, Christmas Eve dinners had become even more agreeable, especially this year when he was almost three going on twenty. He talked about the visits to friends that he and his mother and Edom had made earlier in the day about Father Brown, as if that cleric detective were real, about the puddle-jumping toads that had been singing in the backyard when he and his mother had arrived home from the cemetery. And his chatter was engaging because it was full of a child's charm, yet peppered with enough precocious observations to make it of interest to adults. From the corn soup to the baked ham to the plum pudding, he did not speak of his dry walk in wet weather. Agnes hadn't asked him to keep this strange feat a secret from his uncle's. In truth, she had come home in such a curious state of mind that even as she worked with Jacob to prepare dinner and even as she had overseen Edom's setting of the table, she hesitated to tell them what had happened on the run from Joey's grave to the station wagon. She fluctuated between guarded euphoria and fear bordering on panic, and she didn't trust herself to recount the experience until she had taken more time to absorb it. That night, in Barty's room, after Agnes had listened to his prayers and then had tucked him in for the night, she sat on the edge of his bed. Honey, I was wondering, now that you've had more time to think, could you explain to me what happened? He rolled his head back and forth on the pillow. Nope, it's still just something you gotta feel. All the way things are. Yeah. We'll need to talk about this a lot in the days that come, as we both have more time to think about it. I figured. Softened by a shantung shade, the lamplight was golden on his small, smooth face, but sapphire and emerald in his eyes. You didn't mention it to Uncle Edom or Uncle Jacob, she said. Better not. Why? You were scared, huh? Yes, I was. She didn't tell him that her fear had not been allayed by his assurances or by a second walk in the rain. And you, Barty said, you're never scared of anything. You mean, Edom and Jacob are already afraid of so much. The boy nodded. If we told him, maybe they'd have to wash their shorts. Where'd you hear that expression, she demanded, although she couldn't conceal her amusement. Barty grinned mischievously. One of the places we visited today. Some big kids. They saw this scary movie, and they said they had to wash their shorts after. Big kids aren't always smart just because they're big. Yeah, I know. She hesitated. Edom and Jacob have had hard lives, Barty. Were they coal miners? What? On TV, it said coal miners have hard lives. Not only coal miners, old as you are in some ways, you're still too young for me to explain. But I will. Someday. Okay. You remember we talked before about the stories they're always telling? Hurricane. Galveston, Texas. Back in 1900. 6,000 people died. Frowning, Agnes said, Yes, 
those stories. Sweetie, when Uncle Edom and Uncle Jacob go on about big storms blowing people away and explosions blowing people up, that's not what life's about. It happens, the boy said. Yes, yes it does. Agnes has struggled recently to find a way to explain to Barty that his uncles had lost their hope. To convey also what it meant to live without hope, and somehow to tell the boy all of this without burdening him, at such a young age, with the details of what his monstrous grandfather, Agnes's father, had done to her and her brothers. The task was beyond her abilities. The fact that Barty was a prodigy six times over didn't make his mother's work easier, because in order to understand her, he would require experience and emotional maturity, not just intellect. Frustrated again, she said simply, Whenever Edom and Jacob talk about these things, I want you to be sure always to keep in mind that life's about living and being happy, not about dying. I wish they knew that, Barty said. For those five words, Agnes adored him. So do I, honey. Oh, Lord, so do I. She kissed his forehead. Listen, kiddo, in spite of their stories and all their funny ways, your uncles are good men. Sure, I know. And they love you very much. I love them too, mommy. Earlier, the dirty sheet clouds had been wrung dry. Now the trees that overhung the house had finally stopped dripping on the cedar shingled roof. The night was so still that Agnes could hear the sea softly breaking upon the shore more than half a mile away. Sleepy? she asked. A little. Santa Claus won't come if you don't sleep. I'm not sure he's real. What made you say that? Something I read. A pang of regret pierced her that her boy's precocity should deny him this fine fantasy, as her morose father had denied it to her. He's real, she asserted. You think so? I don't just think so, and I don't just know it. I feel it, exactly like you feel all the way things are. I bet you feel it too. Bright though they were at all times, Barty's Tiffany eyes shone brighter now with beams of North Pole magic. Maybe I do feel it. If you don't, your feeling gland isn't working. Want me to read you to sleep? No, that's okay. I'll close my eyes and tell myself a story. She kissed his cheek, and he pulled his arms out from under the covers of Hugger. Such small arms but such a fierce hug. As she tucked the bedclothes around him again, she said, Barty, I don't think you should let anyone else see how you can walk in the rain without getting wet. Not Edom and Jacob, not anyone at all, and anything else special that you discover you can do, we should keep it a secret between you and me. Why? Furrowing her brow and narrowing her eyes as though prepared to scold him, she slowly lowered her face to his until their noses were touching, and she whispered, Because it's more fun if it's secret. Matching his mother's whisper, taking obvious delight in their conspiracy, he said, Our own secret society. I whispered like that for him because, you know, that's what they said, but that ain't how it works. Even Barty, as super smart as he is, can't whisper. Three-year-olds can't whisper. Three-year-olds whisper like this. Come here, come here, come here. I want to tell you a secret. And then they say, lean in, lean in real close. And then you lean in and they literally put their hands around their mouth to make a megaphone. 
that's not how this works. They put their hands around their mouth like a megaphone to whisper into your ear, and it's never a secret. It's always the dumbest stuff. Come here, come here, come here. I gotta tell you a secret. Okay, lean in. I'm gonna whisper it in your ear. Okay, what's the secret? I woke up this morning! Ow. What would you know about secret societies? Just what's in books and TV. Which is? His eyes widened and his voice became husky with pretended fear. They're always evil. Her whisper grew softer, yet more hoarse. Should we be evil? Maybe. What happens to people in evil secret societies? They go to jail, he whispered solemnly. Then, then let's not be evil. Okay. Ours will be a good secret society. We gotta have a secret handshake. Nah, every secret society has a secret handshake. We'll have this instead. Her face was still close to his, and she rubbed noses with him. He stifled a giggle. Secret word. Eskimo. And the name. The North Pole Society of Not Evil Adventurers. That's a great name. Agnes rubbed noses with him again, kissed him, and rose from the edge of the bed. Gazing up at her, Barty said, You got a halo, mommy. You're sweet, kiddo. No, you really do. She switched off the lamp. Sleep tight, angel boy. The salt highway light didn't penetrate far past the open door. From the plush pillowy shadows of the bed, Barty said, Oh look, Christmas lights. Assuming that the boy had closed his eyes and was talking to himself, somewhere in between a self-told bedtime story and a dream, Agnes retreated from the room, pulling the door only half shut behind her. Good night, Mommy. Good night, she whispered. She switched off the hall light and stood at the half-open door, listening, waiting. Such quiet filled the house that Agnes couldn't hear even the murmuring miseries of the past. Though she had never known snow other than in pictures and on film, this deep-settled silence seemed to speak of falling flakes, of white muffling mantles, and she wouldn't have been in the least surprised if, stepping outside, she had found herself in a glorious winter landscape, cold and crystalline, here on the always snowless hills and shores of the California Pacific. Her special son, walking where the rain wasn't, had made all things seem possible. From the darkness of his room, Barty now spoke the words for which Agnes had been waiting, his whisper soft yet resonant in the quiet house. Good night, Daddy. On other nights, she had overheard this and been touched. On this Christmas Eve, however, it filled her with wonder and wondering, for she recalled their conversation earlier at Joey's grave. I wish your dad could have known you. Somewhere, he does. Daddy died here, but he didn't die every place I am. It's lonely for me here, but not lonely for me everywhere. Soundlessly, reluctantly, Agnes pulled the bedroom door nearly shut and went down to the kitchen where she sat alone, 
drinking coffee, and nibbling at mysteries. Of all the gifts that Barty opened on Christmas morning, the hardback copy of Robert Highland's The Star Beast was his favorite. Instantly enchanted by the promise of an amusing alien creature, space travel, an exotic future, and lots of adventure, he sees every opportunity throughout the busy day to crack open those pages and to step out of Bright Beach into stranger places. As outgoing as his twin uncles were introverted, Barty didn't withdraw from the festivities. Agnes never needed to remind him that family and guests took precedence over even the most fascinating characters in fiction, and the boy's delight in the company of others pleased his mother and made her proud. From late morning until dinner, people arrived and departed, raised toasts to a Merry Christmas and a peace on earth, to health and to happiness, reminisced about Christmas's past, marveled about the first heart transplant performed this very month in South Africa, and prayed that the soldiers in Vietnam would come home soon, and that bright beach will lose no precious suns in those far jungles. The cheerful tides of friends and neighbors over the years have washed away nearly all the stains that the dark rage of Agnes's father had impressed on these rooms. She hoped that her brothers might eventually see that hatred and anger are only scars upon a beach, while love is a rolling surf that ceaselessly smooths the sand. Maria Elena Gonzalez, no longer a seamstress in the dry cleaners, but proprietor of Valina's Fashions, a small dress shop one block off the town square, joined Agnes, Barty, Edom, and Jacob on Christmas evening. She brought her daughters, seven-year-old Benita and six-year-old Francesca, who came with their newest Barbie dolls, Color Magic Barbie, the Barbie Beautiful Blues gift set, Barbie's friends Casey and Tootie, her sister Skipper, and Dreamboat Ken. And soon, the girls of Barty enthusiastically involved in a make-believe world far different from the one in which Highland's teenage lead owned an extraordinary alien pet with eight legs, the temperament of a kitten, and an appetite for everything from grizzly bears to Buicks. Later, when the seven of them were gathered at the dinner table, the adults raised glasses of Chardonnay, the children raised tumblers of Pepsi, and Maria gave the toast. To Bartholomew, the image of his father, who was the kindest man I've ever known. To my Benita and my Francesca, who brighten every day. To Edom and Jacob, from who, from whom I've learned so much that has made me think about the fragility of life and made me realize how precious is every day. And to Agnes, my dearest friend, who has given me oh so much, including all these words. God bless us, everyone. God bless us, everyone. Agnes repeated with all her extended family, and after a sip of the wine, she made an excuse to check on something in the kitchen, where she pressed hot tears into a cool, slightly damp dish towel to prevent the telltale swelling of her eyes. Frequently, these days, she found herself explaining aspects of life to Barty that she hadn't expected to discuss for years to come. She wondered how she could make him understand this. Life could be so sweet, so full, that sometimes happiness is nearly as intense as anguish, and the pressure of it in the heart swells close to pain. When she was finished with the dish towel, she returned to the dining room, and though dinner was underway, she called for another toast. Raising her glass, she said, to Maria, who is more than my friend, my sister, I can't let you talk about what I've given you without telling your girls that you've given back more. You taught me that the world is as simple as sewing. That what seems to be the most terrible problems can be stitched up, repaired. She raised her glass slightly higher. First chicken to be come with first egg inside already. God bless. God bless, said everyone. Maria, 
after a single sip of Chardonnay, fled to the kitchen, ostensibly to check on the apricot flan that she had brought, but in reality, to press a cool and slightly damp dish towel against her eyes. The kids insisted on knowing what was meant by the line about the chicken, and this led to the laying of a coop full of white of the chicken cross the road jokes, which Edom and Jacob had memorized in childhood as an act of rebellion against their humorless father. Later, as Benita and Francesca proudly served their mother's individually molded Christmas tree-shaped servings of flan, which they themselves had plated, Barty leaned close to his mother and, pointing to the table in front of them, said softly but excitedly, Look at the rainbows. She followed his extended finger, but couldn't see what he was talking about. Between the candles, he explained. They were dining by candlelight. Vanilla-scented bougie stood on the sideboard, across the room, glimmering in glass chimneys. But Barty pointed instead to five squat red candles, distributed through the centerpiece of pine sprays and white carnations. Between the flames, see? Rainbows. Agnes saw no arc of color from candle to candle, and she thought he must mean for her to look at the many cut crystal wine glasses and water glasses in which the lambent flames were mirrored. Here and there, the prismatic effect of the crystal rendered reflections of the flames in the red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet spectrums that danced along beveled edges. As the last of the flan was served and Maria's girls took their seats once more, Barty blinked at the candles and said, Gone now even though the tiny spectrum still shimmered in the cut crystal. He turned his full attention to the flan with such enthusiasm that his mother soon stopped puzzling over rainbows. After Maria, Benita, and Francesca had gone, when Agnes and her brothers joined forces to clear the table and wash the dishes, Barty kissed them goodnight and retired to his room with the star beast. Already, he was up two hours past his bedtime. In recent months, he had exhibited the more erratic sleeping habits of older children. Some nights, he seemed to possess the circadian rhythms of owls and bats. After being sluggish all day, he suddenly became alert and energetic at dusk, wanting to read long past midnight. For guidance, Agnes couldn't rely entirely on any of the child-rearing books in her library. Barty's unique gifts presented her with special parenting problems. Now, when he asked if he could stay up even later to read about John Thomas Stewart and Lummox, John's pet from another world, she granted him permission. At 11.45, on her way to bed, Agnes stopped at Barty's room and found him propped against pillows. The book was not particularly large as books went, but it was big in proportion to the boy. Unable to hold it open with his hands alone, he rested his entire left arm against the top of the volume. Good story? she asked. He glanced up. Fantastic! And returned at once to the tale. When Agnes woke at 1.50, she was in the grip of a vague apprehension for which she couldn't identify a source. Fractional moonlight at the window. The great oak in the yard slipping in the breathless bed of the night. The house quiet, neither intruders nor ghosts afoot. Uneasy nevertheless, Agnes went down the hall to her son's room and found that he had fallen asleep sitting up while reading. She slipped the star beast out of the tangle of his arms, marked his place with the jacket flap, and put the book on the nightstand. As Agnes slipped excess pillows out from behind him and eased him down into the covers, Barty half woke, muttering about how the police were going to kill poor Lummox, who hadn't meant to do all that damage, but he had been frightened by the gunfire, and when you weighed six tons and had eight legs, you sometimes couldn't get around a tight place without knocking something over. 
It's okay, she whispered. Lummies will be all right. He closed his eyes again and seemed to sleep. But then as she clicked off the lamp, he murmured, You have your halo again. In the morning, after Agnes showered and dressed, when she went downstairs, she discovered Barty already at the kitchen table, eating a bowl of cereal while riveted to the book. Finished with breakfast, he returned to his room, reading as he went. By lunch, he had turned the final page, and he was so full of the tale that he seemed to have no room for food. While his mother kept reminding him to eat, he regaled her with the details of John Thomas Stewart's great adventures with Lummox, as though every word the Highland had written was not science fiction, but truth. Then he curled up in one of the big armchairs in the living room and began the book again. This was the first time he had ever reread a novel, and he finished it at midnight. The following day, Wednesday, December 27th, his mother drove him to the library, where he checked out two Highland titles recommended by the librarian, Red Planet and The Rolling Stones. Judging by his excitement on the way home in the car, his response to previous mystery novel series had been a pleasant courtship, whereas this was desperate, undying love. Agnes discovered that watching her son be totally consumed by a new enthusiasm was an unparalleled delight. Through Barty, she had a tantalizing sense of what her own childhood might have been like if her father had allowed her to have one, and at times, listening to the boy exclaim about the space-faring stone family or about the mysteries of Mars, she discovered that at least some part of a child still lived within her, untouched by either cruelty or time. Shortly before 3 o'clock Thursday afternoon, in a state of agitation, Barty raced into the kitchen where Agnes was baking buttermilk raisin pies. Holding Red Planet open to pages 104 and 105, he complained urgently that the library copy was defective. There's twisty spots in the print, twisty funny letters, so you can't just exactly read all the words. Can we buy our own copy? Go out and buy one right now? After wiping her flowery hands, Agnes took the book from him and, examining it, could find nothing wrong. She flipped back a few pages, then a few forward but the lines of type were crisp and clear. Show me where, honey. The boy didn't at once answer, and when Agnes looked up from Red Planet, she saw that he was staring oddly at her. He squinted, as if puzzled, and said, The twisty spots just jumped off the page right up on your face. The formless apprehension with which she had awakened at 1.50 Tuesday morning had returned to her from time to time during the past couple days. Now, here it came again, pinching her throat and tightening her chest, at last beginning to take form. Barty turned away from her, surveyed the kitchen, and said, Ah, the twisty is me. Halos and rainbows loomed in her memory, ominous as they had never been before. Agnes dropped to one knee before the boy and held him gently by the shoulders. Let me look. He squinted at her. Peepers open wide, kiddo. He opened them. Sapphires and emeralds, dazzling gems set on clear as white, ebony pupils at the center. Beautiful mysteries, these eyes, but no different now than they had ever been, as far as she could tell. She might have attributed his problem to eye strain from all the reading he had done over the past couple days. She might have put drops in his eyes, told him to leave the books alone for a while, and sent him into the backyard to play. She might have counseled herself not to be one of those alarmist mothers who detect pneumonia in every sniffle, a brain tumor behind every headache. Instead, trying not to let Barty see the depth of her concern, she told him to get his jacket from the front closet 
and she got hers. And leaving the buttermilk raisin pies unfinished, she drove him to the doctor's office because he was her reason to breathe, the engine of her heart, her hope and joy, her everlasting bond to her lost husband. Dr. Joshua Nunn was only 48, but he appeared grandfatherly since Agnes had first gone to him as a patient after the death of her father more than 10 years ago. His hair turned pure white before it was 30. Every day off, he either worked assiduously on his 20-foot sports fisher, Hippocratic boat, which he scraped and painted and polished and repaired with his own hands, or puttered around Bright Bayonet, fishing as though the fate of his soul depended on the size of his catch. Consequently, he spent so much time in the salt air and sun that his perpetually tan face was well wizened at the corners of his eyes, and as appealingly creased as that of the best of grandfathers. Joshua applied the same diligence to the preservation of a round belly and a second chin that he brought to the maintenance of his boat. And considering his wire-rimmed eyeglasses and bow tie and suspenders and the elbow patches on his jacket, he seemed to have intentionally sculpted his physical appearance to put his patience at ease, as surely as he had selected his wardrobe for the same purpose. Always, he was good with Barty. And on this occasion, he teased more than a usual number of smiles and giggles from the boy as he tried to get him to read the Snelling chart on the wall. Then he lowered the lights in the examination room to study his eyes with an ophthalmometer and an ophthalmoscope. From a chair in the corner where Agnes sat, it seemed that Joshua took an inordinately long time on what was usually a quick examination. Worry so weighed on her that the physician's customary thoroughness seemed, this time, to be filled with dire meaning. Finished, Joshua excused himself and went down the hall to his office. He was gone perhaps five minutes, and when he returned, he sent Barty off to the waiting room, where the receptionist kept a jar of lemon and orange-flavored hard candies. A few of them have your name on them, Bartholomew. The subtle distortions in his vision, which caused lines of type to twist, didn't appear to trouble Barty much otherwise. He moved as quickly and surely as ever, with a special grace. Alone with Agnes... The physician said, I want you to take Barty to a specialist in Newport Beach, Franklin Chan. He's a wonderful ophthalmologist and ophthalmological surgeon, and right now, we don't have anyone like that here in town. Her hands were locked together in her lap, gripped so tightly for so long that the muscles in her forearms ached. What's wrong? I'm not an eye specialist, Agnes. But you have some suspicion. I don't want to worry you unnecessarily if, please, prepare me. He nodded. Sit up here. He patted the examination table. She sat on the end of the table where Barty had sat, now at eye level with the standing physician. Before Agnes's fingers could braid again, Joshua held out his darkly tanned, work-scarred hands. Gratefully, she held fast to him. He said, there's a whiteness in Barty's right pupil, which I think indicates a growth. The distortions in his vision are still there, though somewhat different when he closes his right eye. So that indicates a problem on the left as well, even though I'm not able to see anything there. Dr. Chan has a full schedule tomorrow, but as a favor to me, he's going to see you before his usual office hours, first thing in the morning. You'll have to start out early. Newport Beach was almost an hour drive north along the coast. And, Joshua cautioned, you better prepare for a long day. I'm pretty sure Dr. Chan will want to consult with an oncologist. Cancer, 
she whispered, and superstitiously reproached herself for speaking the word aloud, as though thereby she had given power to the malignancy and ensured its existence. We don't know that yet, Joshua said. But she knew. Barty, buoyant as ever, seemed not to be much worried about the problem with this vision. He appeared to expect it to have passed like any sneezing fit or cold. All he cared about was Red Planet and what might happen after page 103. He had carried the book with him to the doctor's office, and on the way home in the car, he repeatedly opened it, squinting at the lines of type, trying to read around or through the twisty spots. Jim and Frank and Willis there, they're in deep trouble. Agnes prepared a dinner to indulge him, hot dogs with cheese, potato chips, root beer instead of milk. She was not going to be as forthright with Barty as she insisted that Joshua Nunn be with her, in part because she was too shaken to risk forthrightness. Indeed, she found it difficult to talk with her son in their usual easy way. She heard a stiffness in her voice that she knew would sooner or later be apparent to him. She worried that her anxiety would prove contagious, that when her fear infected her boy, he would be less than able to fight whatever hateful thing had taken seat in his right eye. Robert Heinlein saved her. Over hot dogs and chips, she read to Barty from Red Planet, beginning at the top of page 104. He had previously shared enough of the story with Agnes that she felt connected to the narrative, and soon she was sufficiently involved with the tale that she was better able to conceal her anguish. To his room, then, where they sat side by side in bed, a plate of chocolate chip cookies between them. Through the evening, they stepped off this earth and out of all its troubles into a world of adventure, where friendship and loyalty and courage and honor could deal with any malignancy. After Agnes read the final words on the final page, Barty was drunk on speculation, chattering about what might have happened next to these characters that had become his friends. He talked nonstop while changing into his pajamas, while peeing, while brushing his teeth, and Agnes wondered how she would wind him down to sleep. He wound himself down, of course. Sooner than she expected, he was snoring. One of the hardest things she had ever done was to leave him then, alone in his room, with the hateful something still quietly growing in his eye. She wanted to move the armchair close to his bed and watch over him throughout the night. If he woke, however, and saw her sitting vigil, Barty would understand how terrible his condition might be. And so, Agnes went alone to her room, and there, as on so many nights, sought the solace of the rock who was also her lamp, of the lamp who was also her high fortress, of the fortress who was also her shepherd. She asked for mercy, and if mercy was not to be granted, she asked for the wisdom to understand the purpose of her sweet boy's suffering. When my son, when we found out that he needed heart surgery, when we found out that he had a condition that only affected 0.003% of the world. When we found out that the doctors had never done this surgery before and they were as scared as we were. Those moments. I understand this book a lot more than when I was a kid. Those moments. That anguish. That fear. It's so palpable right now. And every time that I read something about a child with an affliction in a book, I think about my son and how he bravely. 
only want to attribute bravely to him how he lived his life as normally as possible, knowing that a surgery was going to change his life. We sat up and we played games deep into the night and we held him close and the whole family came over and we all played games and we all laughed and we laughed like it was the last time. And then he got the surgery and we were unsure if he was going to make it through. If he was going to make it through the first night, the first night was always the hardest. And then the second night, and then he coughed and the pain and just wanted to take all the pain away from him. And, but with the pain came the healing. I remember that vividly. I remember this book. 916-633-1537 Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com Ratchet Book Club on Twitter Ratchet Book Club on Facebook Leave a review on Patreon um, You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts And copy and paste that into the Good Pods app um, You can donate to the show on Patreon.com Slash Single Simulcast Or on BuyMeACoffee.com Slash SSCast Or on the Good Pods app There's a tip jar Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm out to you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by that kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this feat. This is Single Simulcast. <laughs>